Hey everyone, I'm Brian Kaderna, and you are now tuned in to the Kaderna Podcast. So I was trying to think of a good title for today's episode, and as I reflected on my conversation with Tom Hall, I kept coming back to the power of optimism. You see, Tom Hall had a pretty normal childhood growing up on a farm in Iowa. He was a little bigger and more athletic than most, having been a three-sport all-state athlete, but otherwise nothing quite out of the ordinary. It wasn't until he graduated high school that tragedy struck. And as a way to sort of get away and find a new challenge, Tom joined the Army. He eventually completed two deployments in Afghanistan as an Army Ranger. They are the Army's elite special operations unit, for those who might not be familiar. But unfortunately, Tom encountered more loss before his time in the military came to an end. But when he got out of the Army, that athletic itch returned. He enrolled at Iowa State and began playing defensive end in the Big 12, one of just three veterans in the country to play Division I football. With a bachelor's in political science and a master's in conflict management, Tom has since advised many startups relating to intelligence, renewable energy, e-commerce, and professional sports. He's currently pursuing his doctorate in business administration at the University of South Florida, and is a program manager at Veritas Technologies. This is a story about loss, overcoming traumatic events, and an optimistic attitude that keeps leading to the next success. I hope you find this interview as inspiring as I did. So without further ado, here is Tom Hall. Is going to require work and time and sweat and toil. If money wasn't an issue, what would I be doing? Don't worry about it. You'll figure it out. Change is the only constant. The Kadena Podcast. Tom, welcome to the show. Thanks, Brian. Happy to be here. Yeah, yeah. I'm excited to kind of discuss all this because we have such an array of guests here on the show, but um, I've never had anyone in the special forces. And I know there's kind of such a mystique out there, particularly like from branch to branch. Uh, would you say Army Rangers are at the top? I mean, I'm pretty biased. I think first off, I have to give a plug. So all my my Green Beret friends are going to come down on me pretty hard. Uh, you know, we, we typically refer to Rangers as part of Special Operations and then Special Forces is reserved for Green Berets who fall under the umbrella of Special Operations. It's a really weird, nuanced thing. But I think when it comes to our skill set and kind of our mission set, oh, yeah, for sure. They're, they're top of the food chain. That's awesome. How does that work with the Navy SEALs? I always hear like a bit of a rivalry between, you know, who went through a harder training program between the Rangers and the SEALs. I feel like that comparison, a rivalry, that's like Alabama and Vanderbilt saying they have a rivalry. There, there's not really one. We we just, we typically just push SEALs to the side, ignore them and keep moving on. So, but uh, <laughs> yeah, that's that's about the most I'll say about that. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. So, I mean, maybe we could use that as a starting point today. Like, when you were growing up, did you did you dream of joining the army one day of, you know, being, you know, G.I. Joe or at like what point did you want to join the army? And then when when you get in, did you say, you know, I want to go to the, the top of the top and, and join the Ranger program? Yeah, you know, I wish I could say I joined because of some sense of, of patriotic duty, but really I didn't have it. Um, I, I was in my second semester of college after high school, had no direction in life, didn't know what I wanted to do, didn't know what I wanted to be, still don't at 35. But my <laughs> best friend at the time came up to me one day, and this was during the surge in Iraq when a lot of people were heading overseas. And he said, hey, I signed up. I'm going to go be a Green Beret. I leave in a few months. And I said, the hell you are. And I went down to the recruiting station, tried to talk him out of it with the recruiter, walked out, went home that night and told my mom, hey, I signed up to be an Army Ranger. And uh, basically that was kind of from the, the sense of, I didn't know what I wanted to do and I didn't want my best friend to go off to war by himself. Um, so I, I had no desire growing up to be in the military. You know, one or two of my uncles were in the military, but aside from that, we weren't a military family. Um, so I, yeah, it, it kind of just came out of nowhere. My mom about stabbed me when I got home and told her I had joined. So that, that's kind of what led me to, to join. It was out of nowhere, really. Wow, that that's crazy. And so do you think it was more like you wanted to be with your buddy? Or I mean, did you walk in there and the recruiter just got you so fired up? You're like, hey, I'm in. I don't know. I, I think <laughs> it was probably arrogance and cockiness back then. I'm sure the reason I joined was because at the time, uh, you know, I, I was the probably one of the best, if not the better athletes uh, from our high school class. 
And my friend that had joined wasn't, he, he was a good athlete, but wasn't very well known for it. I saw all these people coming up and shaking his hand and saying how proud they were of him. And it's so brave to go on. I, I'm sure as a, a 18 year old kid in the back of my mind, I was like, all right, all right. Maybe, maybe I need to sign up too, to get these handshakes and high fives. Um, yeah. I, I think that's probably what part of it was. And the other part of it was just about to lose my best friend. I don't, you know, what else am I going to do? Sit around here and continue going to school for no purpose. So, uh, yeah. it's hard to tell now that you've, you've grown up and matured a little bit, really what caused me to go. That's, that's interesting. And when you're joining almost kind of in tandem, not with a brother, but you know, like yourself, you know, your best friend, is there any way that you guys can kind of run parallel paths through the military or are you instantly just kind of separated? One's going to one side of the country, someone's going somewhere else, or is there any way that you can kind of stick together in a sense like that? No, you know, I think they kind of lost that aspect of the military going back to probably around Vietnam, where you used to be able, especially in World War One and World War Two, you used to be able to join. That was the incentive to get people to join. And you can join with your, your, your whole company or your whole uh, local community. You all stick together the whole time. But they ended up seeing a lot of negatives of that. You know, if a whole battalion gets wiped out, that might be a whole part of a small town. Now that whole town is devastated. But uh, it's a little off topic. But no, we he he joined and left. I want to say he left in July, August 2007. I finished up one more semester so I could come into the Army at a higher rank. I didn't leave till January 2008. So by the time I got to my basic training class, he was already through basic training. And I think he was through Airborne and on the way to Special Forces training. But regardless... Uh, Green Berets, they're, they're usually stationed uh, kind of all throughout the U.S. in completely different bases than Rangers are, with the exception of, I think, 2nd Ranger Battalion and 1st Special Forces Group are both up at Fort, uh, uh, I don't even remember the name of it anymore, Lewis, Fort Lewis, uh, Tacoma, Washington. So we, we would have been separated anyways. Yeah. yeah, that's interesting. And so I know when we were just kind of running through your bio there, you were pretty much a, a stud athlete growing up, you know, all state, played three sports. Like, was that the intent that you wanted to try and like further the athletic career? Or did you have a bit of that epiphany of like, hey, you know, organized sports, all this stuff I've gotten this thrill through is coming to an end? You know, what was going through your mind there? What were some of your goals at that stage of life? You know, I think my I don't have a lot of idols or people I look up to from childhood celebrities. None of that stuff has ever really resonated with me. But, you know, Pat Tillman, I had one poster on my wall. It wasn't even a poster. It was a newspaper clipping. There's a picture of Pat Tillman that I had taken uh, clear paper or clear uh, tape and taped it to my door, my bedroom. That was it. It's the only picture poster I had, just what he had sacrificed and gone through. It always resonated with me. And that's more so why I picked to be a ranger instead of special forces or any other route. Um, but I think the, the physical aspect of it was big. You know, when you leave high school sports and everyone goes through this, I think a lot of people really miss that competitive physical aspect of it. You think I'm still a big, fast, strong person. Am I wasting it? What do I do with this? And I think that really played into it, but also I grew up for lack of a better term, a pretty big mama's boy. I hated being away from home. I got homesick regularly. They, I did boy scouts all the way up until first or second year of it. Uh, from childhood until I was 13 or 14. I hated it because I would always have anxiety attacks leaving home. So I think for me, this was also an opportunity to put that to the real test. Like, am I ready to just venture out on my own and do something as intense and dangerous as this, but then also combine it with the the physical athleticism that is required to get through selection, that is required to complete training and do deployment. So I think that competitive nature of being an athlete really did play into going that direction right off the bat. I, I think for me, I've always been a believer of aim as high as you can. So aim for the top of the food chain, go the hardest route you can right off the bat with the military, you know, Rangers, Green Berets, Air Force Special Tactics. Those, those kind of units are top of the food chain and their difficulty to get into right off the bat. So my thought was I'd rather try for that. If I fail, I'll take a step down and do something different. And luckily, unfortunately, I, I didn't fail. I made it through it. So it, it was, it was pretty good. Yeah, no, that's, that's an awesome journey that you took. And so, I mean, you, you leave sports and you kind of find this other avenue where you can kind of elaborate on that. I think the big thing, you know, and you hear about this all the time, especially in football, you know, I'm a huge football fan and played football, but they say, you know, we're going into battle or, you know, today we're going with our brothers, we're going into war, you know, on this Sunday or whatever. And there's all this kind of like grandiose talk, but I mean, did you have that that moment where it was like, man, like I'm I'm not just going from a thing where like I could sprain my ankle. Now I'm 
I'm doing the real deal where it is kind of life and death, you know, because I know even amongst peers, like that was such a reservation of like, hey, I think I could do it. You know, I want to do it. But how frightening is that? That literally like my life is going to be on the line. Um, did you have a lot of that or you were just like, hey, let's go and, and you know, see how it turns out? I think it paid off being young and kind of naive. Uh, I didn't know what really? to expect. The internet in 2007 obviously wasn't what it is now. So you didn't have a lot of resources to understand what you were getting into. Uh, but I, I think that didn't really impact me. I wasn't too worried about it, especially once I, I got through training. Uh, you have to really get through all the, the mental games. Every single military school you go to, whether it's basic training, which is very easy, uh, airborne school, which is also very easy. You have these horror stories beforehand where people are trying to scare you, whether people that failed it, people that passed it and were gatekeeping it or instructors that were trying to get in your head. They always try and scare you with these stories. Uh, Ranger selection. Now it's called RASP, the Ranger Assessment and Selection Program. What I went through was called RIP, the Ranger Indoctrination Program, which sounds a little culty now that you think about it, but it was a different program then. But they tried to scare you. And ultimately what it came down to is a lot of it is physical and mental. And I felt like I had a pretty tough background physically and mentally that I'd be fine. And then once I got through it, it, it really, I think I became less and less anxious. When I deployed for the first time, I was extremely comfortable because I trusted the people I was around. I trusted my leadership. It was some of the best leadership, the most, I mean, we had guys that were 25, 26 years old that had 10, 11, 12 deployments to Afghanistan and Iraq. So these are people that are seasoned. Wow. I'm going to listen to what they say. I'm going to do what they say and I'll be safe. Uh, obviously there's high risk there, but it's something you take on going into that role. But honestly, especially having played football after the military in college, the parallels between college athletics or athletics in general, especially football, violent physical sport, they're warranted. The, 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 the parallels between motivation, going into battle and war and fighting alongside your brothers, it's, it's all very, very similar. So I, I think it that just was carried on from high school sports into the military and then from the military to college sports. Yeah, that's interesting. And so just to kind of rewind a little bit, I know you said growing up, you were out on the farm, you know, doing real blue collar work, things of that nature and pretty normal childhood until your senior year, um, which I know that was a bit of the impetus that got you to, to join the military. Can you just kind of bring, you know, our, our listeners up to speed on, you know, what, what happened there? What was maybe that pivotal moment? Yeah, I think, you know, I, I had a very normal childhood, a great childhood, grew up in a probably lower middle class family uh, on an acreage. And, you know, I was always gone because of sports. So I was lucky. Sports kept me busy. If sports weren't busy, I was out in the woods doing random kids stuff on the river or lake. But ultimately, my senior year of high school, I remember my, my mom and dad divorced my senior year going into it. And it was an amicable divorce. They moved out about 10 miles apart, but it was, there was no custody battles. There was nothing. My dad was always allowed over at my mom's house and vice versa. But ultimately, mm -hmm. uh, there was a lot of stuff going on that I never knew about. My mom kept me sheltered from my dad. Had, he had picked up a drug addiction and some other things. And then ultimately, my senior year of high school, I got a phone call at 2 in the morning, I think, on Christmas morning. And my dad had attempted suicide. He got drunk and jumped off the bridge in the middle of town into freezing cold water and rocks somehow survived and was okay. But from that moment forward, my viewpoint on my dad, kind of the only father figure I had, the only idol I had in my life at that point had drastically changed. So once I got through high school, sports were done and everything else, I think that unknowingly to me at the time really shaped my path forward and kind of pushed me to want to just get away uh, from everything that I had grown up with. So I think that was a big driver in, in me joining the military probably as well. Wow. And and I'm sure a, a moment like that is just a complete shock for anybody. But like you said, you know, your mom was kind of helping shelter and make everything at least appear as normal as could be throughout. Um, I mean, did that completely blindside you? Like, did you see anything there that was like, wow, I would have never in a million years could have foreseen this? You know, I don't really know. I, looking back on it, I know my dad was having a rough time with the divorce. He knew it was his own fault. Um, I don't think he, he didn't have an affair or anything like that. My mom had given him warnings on he, he, he was an alcoholic prior to having me. He had gotten two DUIs. My mom said, we're not having kids and you're getting divorced if, if you keep drinking. So he went sober for the first 18 years of my life. And then once something happened and he started getting hooked on drugs, my mom saw the writing on the wall. So um, mm. I, I don't, yeah, it's, it, it, 
it was difficult. I probably should have seen it coming, but I didn't. But it wasn't really a big shock when it did happen. I don't know. My my brain, I've been fortunate. I think that's really important to say. I've been very fortunate mentally when traumatic events happen that my brain reacts a little bit differently than other people's in the point that it doesn't self-destruct. It doesn't tear me down. And more so probably builds up little walls around me and really tries to find the positives in it. Now, in that situation, there's not really any positives, but um, ultimately it had probably a positive impact on my life and pushed me to get away from that small town life and, and kind of start my own thing. Yeah, well, it's a good point that you bring up that you were able to kind of to move on in a sense, because I know a lot of people would just, I, I don't know, self-destruct, but to something to that effect of, you know, life is forever changed. Um, and so after that, did, did you go, you were in college for a bit, you said, so that you could come out and become an officer in the army, I believe? Uh, I was enlisted, so I was lower enlisted, but I think to go okay. in, I think I had to be a, uh, have a certain amount of college to come in as an E4, and that's E4, E3, I can't even remember now, probably E3, a, a private first class. I think that's that's why I stayed in college longer, yep. Got it. And was that something, just to, if you don't mind, kind of diving a little deeper, like once you got into the Army and then you got into the Rangers, um, was this stuff that you talked about, you know, with, with your buddies there? Or was it like, you know, I got a job to do. I'm just going to take what was the past and bury it. Yeah, I think I buried everything. I think most of us did. Uh, you know, in 2007, 2008, you had a lot of people joining from very rough backgrounds, way worse than mine, harder upbringings. We had people that, that didn't have parents that joined right when they turned 18. So they could get away from whatever life they had. Um, and I don't think we compartmentalized it, but I think there was kind of a collective understanding that all of us had suffered something at some point in our lives. Not everybody. Some some had come from privileged lives, which is impressive in its own right, leaving that. But uh, no, we we didn't talk about any of our personal problems. I don't know if they do now, but we never did back then. So nobody was aware of any of the, the family issues. Nobody knew about my family, knew any positives or negative about it. We all were just really focused on you know, building our relationships with each other. So when we deploy, we have that trust and understanding and whatnot. Because, it, it, you know, back then it, and still now today, I guess it, it was life or death. So that was more sure. so our focus. And how many times were you actually deployed when you were a ranger? Uh, I did two deployments to Afghanistan. To Afghanistan? Yep. Okay. And when you go out there, I mean, are you in, I know you said like, these are guys that you can trust implicitly as you're working together. Is it just because we were rangers or was it because they were actually like, was it such a close-knit community that they were guys you knew personally um, that you were with for each of those deployments? Or was it kind of like a shifting kind of merry-go-round of different soldiers that you were getting aligned with? Yeah, for the guys that stay in for for the longer duration of it, they definitely have a little bit of a merry-go-round, I think. But you still get that brotherhood that that group team dynamic you know the people i deployed with my first and second deployment were almost the exact same people and, and you're training with those people you train primarily as kind of a platoon in a squad within that and the guys that i that i trained with i lived with in the barracks back then so i spent my evenings and weekends with them i spent most of my holidays with them and our training was a six-month training cycle that was very intense you know you're you're out for days on end, every single week with these guys, hungry, tired, cold, wet, everything else, flying across the country, doing various trainings. So that, that, that really breeds that close knit community amongst all your guys. But I was fortunate that, that the vast majority of the people that I, I deployed with and trained with and everything else were the same every time. Wow. That's, I mean, that's gotta be pretty unique. And so one of the, a couple of questions I have, if, if we can just pause kind of on that time when you were deployed or even just a, a moment before that. So I've heard different things from guys, you know, in special forces that say, you know, when you go through something crazy, like, like, I believe it was rip, you said the program you went through or when the seals go through buds and stuff, they say, you know, all that's doing is kind of showing you, you that you can do it, that you have it within you, that it's not that actual program that makes you a ranger or makes you a seal. It's just showing that, okay, these guys can't do it. And they washed out. And then these guys over here can do it. Do you, do you feel that same way? Or do you feel like you actually became a bigger, stronger person going through the program? That's a great question. I think it, it varies for everybody. Um, for me, it was more so about what's your ceiling. Uh, what, you know, knowing how much you can suffer and be okay. Uh, some people hit a certain point and they're like, nope, I'm out. 
And that's okay. There's nothing embarrassing about that. There's nothing demeaning about it. Some people just aren't built physically and mentally to take that punishment. And I think the reason for that is because very rarely when you're in, you're in combat or you're in training as a ranger, do you go through that same level of pain that you went through, but you have to be prepared for it. You know, there are certain platoons, certain units, certain people that have gone through pretty hellacious combat scenarios overseas and having that understanding of where your ceilings potentially at, I shouldn't even say ceiling, I should say floor. Uh, that's very important and vital to get through that. And obviously it's not foolproof. We had people that would get overseas and the first time a bullet went off on them, they'd start to freeze up. And it was very rare, but you would you'd identify those people and you'd just help them transition out and go to a different unit. But um, yeah, I, I think it's, it's different for everybody. I was always of the mindset in my selections, my first one, so Ranger Selection, I wanted all my friends to get through. I wanted to carry them through. Hey, you're struggling and thinking about quitting. No, no, no. I'm going to, I'm going to motivate you not to quit. And then once I got to, to special forces selection, which is for green berets about two, two and a half years later, I had the opposite mentality. Having been in combat, when I saw people crying and shaking and saying they were going to quit and we were only halfway, I didn't try to motivate them. I said, quit. This isn't for you. It's okay. And when wow. people would younger kids would try and carry them along, I understood it from a, from a team aspect. If we're talking about sports, you want to carry that person along and you want to bring them. My mindset was no, if they can't make it through this 10 mile hike through the sand, how are they going to make a five mile infill carrying hundred pounds of equipment while we're being potentially shot at in Afghanistan, leave them, let them quit. It's okay. Um, with the exceptions of injuries, if you, you don't want to risk anybody's safety or well being, but uh, I think my mindset just shifted throughout my course in the military though. Wow. And did you ever have a moment through that training um, where you personally, you were like, I don't think I could do this? No, I was good. I mean, I was, uh, really? I should say, I'm pretty blessed with my physical ability. I mean, I, my roommate in Ranger Battalion, he's like a five foot, he's gonna be pissed if he listens to this, five foot five, <laughs> maybe five foot six, little guy. He had to work so much harder than I did. I'm six five. So it was easier for me to carry a hundred pound load in my back and walk for miles on end. He had to push so much harder. So I, I don't think the distribution of toughness is even by any means. Now, there were times in like special forces selection, like in the log drill, where the, the guy that's four inches shorter than me behind me doesn't have that hundred or probably five, 600 pound log resting on his shoulder, resting on mine. So there were some trade-offs, but um, I don't remember ever having a point where physically I was ready to tap out. Mentally, I was ever ready to tap out. I mean, that's, that's always been fun and exciting to me. I think there's a good benefit in suffering and yeah. learning more about yourself. So for me, again, as a young single guy with no wife, no kids back then, uh, it was a lot easier. Now, the guys that had wives and kids at home, I don't know how the hell they did it. Because right now, having a two-year-old and a wife, I probably would have tapped day one looking back <laughs> on it now. So it's even more impressive. Yeah. Why do you say that? Is it just because their mind is somewhere else or or they're just thinking like, you know, I should be home like this this pain isn't worth it to me yeah i don't know it's it's i think there's so many more factors that are getting in your brain it's almost like a disease at times you can watch tv shows uh like uh alone or naked and afraid where people are suffering they're malnourished they're tired your brain starts to fire off random crazy thoughts like things that aren't rational and you know they're not rational it's trying to talk you out of doing the harder stuff try to get you to quit with the suffering. And when it's just you and you don't have family, you don't have friends, you don't have significant others to, I don't want to say infect your brain, but you know, influence the way your brain is thinking during those tough times, it's far easier. But if you're 30 years old with two kids at home and a wife that you love and you're out in the mud and in the middle of Fort, Fort uh, Moore now, Georgia, uh, suffering and you know you're going to graduate, and it's still not done, you're going to go into Ranger Battalion and then go off into combat. Those thoughts start to creep in. You start to doubt yourself whether this is the right call or not. And sometimes people will just talk themselves out of it. Be like, you know what? This isn't safe. This wasn't the right call. I shouldn't do this. And I think a lot of those people experience regret later on, but it's not their fault. It's just, it's very tough mental barrier to overcome. Sure. And so I want to ask a, a question too, on the time that, that you were in the army, um, I know you said you did two deployments to Afghanistan. How, when you look back at your time in the army, I mean, how does it kind of feel knowing that everything ended the way that it did, you know, that we were, we were there in the middle East for such a long period of time. And then unfortunately, I think just a lot of the general public, they look at particularly the way that we exited Afghanistan 
which pretty much looked like, you know, hey, we're done here. We're leaving. And then the bad guys came in like a day later and we're like, okay, we got it back. You know, it, I mean, maybe it's not so black and white as I'm making it out to be right now. But what did, I mean, what did you feel like when you were seeing that on the news? Um, you know, all those images of, of just kind of, it was just mayhem, you know, on the tarmac. Like, what what was going through your mind? What were you thinking? Yeah, that's a tough one to answer because I think there's no wrong answer on it. I have a lot of friends that are still outraged by the way we withdrew. And I was a little more shrugged my shoulders and said, guys, we knew this was coming years ago, a decade ago. In 2008, when we're out there in Afghan villages, seeing the way the culture is, seeing the way the people were receptive to us or not receptive, you know, understanding the history, the tribal mentality, the warlordism, all this stuff. We knew back in 2008 and probably the guys before then, we knew it was going to end like it ended. Um, so I guess the question then comes in, do you think we should have taken our time and slowly withdrawn to have the same end result? The end result would have been the same. The Taliban would be back in power and the Afghan National Army would basically be dissolved, which is what happened. Um, I don't think there's any difference. Rip that bandaid off and withdraw immediately in a very chaotic, awful fashion or slowly off ramp. And, you know, unfortunately there were lives lost during that chaotic off ramp, but who's to say, I mean, we were still losing people in Afghanistan at that time. Who's to mm -hmm. say with the slow off ramp, we're not also losing people. So I, I don't think there's a wrong answer to that uh, on if someone's upset or content with it. I think they're both right. Uh, for me, I, I just, I'm not in the Pentagon. I'm not in the White House. You know, I remember back in 2009, uh, uh, an order got passed down about soft knocks. So no longer kicking in doors in the middle of the night, try to do a call out to get the Taliban or whoever they were to come out with their hands up. That way we can avoid destroying property and killing people. At the time, I thought, man, the U.S. government would rather lose an American soldier than risk killing a Taliban fighter on accident. That's not right. Well, as you get older and you look back in hindsight and read more, and you're like, okay, I understand the, the, the thought process behind it. You know, we didn't want the Vietnam effect going in where we're blowing yeah. up houses and killing the wrong people. And now we just created 300 Taliban in exchange for killing one or two. Um, so I look at that with the withdrawal as, you know, hopefully there was, there was aspects of it logistically that were going on that I'll never understand or know at this point in time. So I think it's unfortunate, but I, I wasn't as bothered by it as a lot of people were. And that's, again, not saying that's right or wrong, but um, I just knew it was coming no matter what. So I was just glad to kind of be done with it. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's pretty wild to hear that viewpoint. And in going back, like you said, in 2008, you already had kind of that foresight of there's not going to be just a, a happy ending to this thing. Um, I mean, were there times, uh, you know, after a deployment where you and your guys were just kind of like, you know, what are we doing? Like, what, like, did you feel like every time, like, okay, there's a goal here today, that's going to be another goal this week, and then another goal this year, and then it's going to lead to this bigger victory. Was there that kind of, you know, line that you could walk? Or, I mean, you had to at some point kind of think about like, you know, what's going right, what's going wrong from like a macro standpoint? Yeah, that's, that's a good question, too. I Thinking back on it, no, we never really had conversations of should we be really? here, should we not be here? The guys in Iraq, uh, Iraq, I think, did. That was a much more, you know, the reason for going into Afghanistan was pretty solid. The first few months of it, we did a very good job. And then politics and the bureaucrats flooded it in and kind of destroyed it. And, but Iraq, I think you have a much more foundational argument of we never should have been there in the first place. Mm -hmm. And what was going on was extremely difficult in that country. But I never heard anybody, I think we all collectively knew, now nah, this isn't going to matter. We're not going to win this war. There is no winning it. Um, but we never really talked about it. And I think it came down to, we looked at things more on a micro level. Like the mm -hmm. Rangers are, obviously civilian casualties happen, but especially I, I think having worked, uh, Rangers working with Delta Force a lot, Delta Force is very anti-killing women and children, which sounds pretty common sense, but Unless someone's shooting at you, just do not do something that will risk killing a woman or child because that further complicates everything we're trying to do here. So that was instilled for a certain extent on Ranger Battalion, Ranger Regiment. But um, we knew on a micro level, hey, this this Taliban commander over here has is, is basically killing women and children that don't agree with him. He's enslaving them. He's killing innocent Afghans for no reason. He's blowing up 
vehicles next to coalition forces. So we knew that guy's bad. So when you kill him, we're like, that's a bad guy. We feel good about that. The earth has one less bad guy on it. But when you look at the macro, we were all like, doesn't change anything. Some some other person's going to fill that guy's shoes tomorrow, and then we're going to have to go kill him. And I think that was kind of our mindset was, yeah, our job's not to win this war. Our job is just to execute whatever piece of strategy we're involved in. And I don't think there was ever a lot of dialogue about dissenting about the validity of the war or anything else so that I can remember. Wow. that I mean, that just seems kind of surprising to me that there's... um you know, amongst all the different, you know, personalities and folks there, especially guys that have done multiple deployments that don't, you know, kind of have uh, like that come to Jesus moment of like, you know, what's going on here. But, but even so, so as you kind of like move forward, I know, um, eventually in, in your story, which is kind of crazy as you went back to playing college football, had, you know, just fill us in, you, you do your two deployments, and then you're back on the gridiron what happened there? Like what started it? And then what happened in between before you became that football player again? Yeah, it was, uh, I don't know how to explain it, but so a little bit of context to it. You know, I went through all my training in the army with, with two guys, Luke and Tyler, we did basic together. We did airborne together. Luke went on to the 82nd airborne and, and Tyler and I went through ranger selection and he went to, to second ranger battalion. We did every, jump on that airplane, slept in the dirt, and everything we did was just always keeping each other positive, optimistic, and smiling. Well, I think the end of my f- second deployment, uh, Luke was killed in Iraq about a week away from coming home from his deployment. I think he was 20 years old. Um, and then about a year later, my dad was was killed in an accident back in Iowa. And then about six months later, uh, Tyler was killed in Afghanistan with 2nd Ranger Battalion. And all that stuff happened. I was in the middle of the, the Special Forces Qualification Corps. And I was just fed up. I was fed up of everything. Mentally, I had it with, you know, I lost two good friends. I lost my dad. Training, I felt was, you know, what takes a year, I felt maybe should take less time being young and, and impatient. And I said, I'm, I'm done. I'm over it. So I ended up leaving the Special Forces course. I went and did two years of language training at Fort Campbell, which was amazing and great. But during that time, I remember I went home for a weekend and I was talking to someone. It's about, hey, I would love to play college football. Again, you know, I'm 250 pounds. I'm in good shape. I'm bigger, faster, stronger than I was when I was uh, playing in high school. Why can't I do it? And someone said, dude, you're too old. You're too broken. There's no way in hell you can do it. I'm like, I bet you I can do it. I remember I left <laughs> that you? night and I'm like, all right, I'm going to do it. And then I went around and I told all my family, all my friends, everyone I saw, I'm going to get out of the army and play football. And all of them were like, really? And I remember someone asking, why are you telling everybody this? You don't know if you're going to be able to play. I'm like, well, if I get to the point where I can, I'm going to be a lot more motivated to do what I say. Because otherwise, I'm a liar. Otherwise, everyone's going to say, hey, what happened? And it's going to be embarrassing. So my logic was tell everybody I'm going to play football. So I'm more motivated to train for it. And uh, that's how I ended up deciding to leave the military and go play football was someone dared me in a bar and I took it to heart. (laughs) Jeez, that's crazy. And how old were you at that time when you said, hey, I'm going to make my return? Um, I think I was 24 at the time. And then when I left okay. and actually made the team, I was 25. Okay. Yeah. So still in your physical prime for sure. Yeah. Definitely doable. But I know it's funny. Um, you know, I did an Ironman and I think it was 2015. And it was kind of like a, a, you know, whimsical New Year's resolution of like, you know, I, I did this crazy marathon the year before that I never did anything like that in my life. And People were like, oh, you got to one up it. You got to do something else. And then Iron Man just got thrown out there. And um, then you, you fast forward a little bit. And I was on the board of directors for the YMCA. And so we ended up setting up this fundraiser, you know, where, hey, you can go sponsor me to do this Iron Man. It got in the newspapers. It spread all over the place. And so then lo and behold, you know, I'm going up to Quebec. And it was just in my head where I was like, I have no idea if I can do this, but I can't. There's no way I can go back home now and be like, yeah, I just, <laughs> sorry guys, I didn't finish. Like, so when, when it's kind of similar, I mean, when you said you were going to play football, like, did you feel that pressure or were you just like, Hey, let's just ride with it and kind of, you know, ride the wave. I think I did a little bit, um, you know, but then I started training uh, with, with other people who, whether they're in the NFL or they play college football, I started training with them. And basically I just football. The great thing about football is it's not like basketball or baseball where you need a high level of skill and that skill can diminish football. 
I was still running a 4.5, 4.6, 40 at 240, 250 pounds. Okay, great, cool. Mm-hmm. I was still doing all my, my, my lifting was still pretty up to snuff. And I was comparing myself to NFL players for some stupid reason, but <laughs> I would compare those measurables and say, well, if I can do that, I can make a team. And obviously I had these inflated viewpoints. I'm going to be an all American. I'm going to score touchdowns. I'm going to go to the NFL. And then really I just got the living shit beat out of me by a bunch of 18, 19 year old kids. So I was humbled pretty badly there, but um, I did, I did feel some pressure at first until, you know, those first, uh, the first time stepping on the field, I was like, okay, I'm probably not going to be good, but I can, I can at least make somebody else better by being their punching bag. So <laughs> there you go. And how did it feel? I mean, kind of it's right now. I mean, you say 24, it's like, oh, you're just a kid. But I know in college when you're, you know, 18, 19, and then you have that one guy on the team that's 23 or 24, you think he's like your grandfather. Did, did it feel that way where you were kind of like this almost like coach on the field with these guys? I mean, they did, they did like a uh, movie night Tuesdays in uncle Tom's. So yeah, I felt that way a little bit. People would come over and watch <laughs> starship troopers and some other great war historical movies at my house. Um, so it definitely felt that way. But I think, I think part of the reason why I was brought on to wasn't because I was going to be a physical stud. I think a lot of it was bring that maturity, bring that, that viewpoint into the locker room. Cause a lot of these kids, a lot of these kids, especially in sports, come from very rough homes and they don't feel comfortable going and talking to a coach who's a coach, who's an authority figure and who probably can't empathize with them. But if they have a, a player on the team, okay, it's a player, it's a peer, and they've been through some stuff, similar stuff, comparable stuff, what have you, they can empathize. So I think that was one thing I was fortunate with was I had quite a few people come up to me and just ask my advice on stuff. I mean, I think a couple, a couple of the guys joined the military. One of them, one of them's a green beret right now. He played defensive line with me. Um, so wow. I think there were some other effects, but yeah, no people, people definitely looked at me like the, the old grandpa on the team, but also I was still 25. So I was able to go out and do the stupid college kid things too with them. <laughs> That's cool. And when you, you kind of had that go around as a football player at that 24 versus that 18 year old kid, like, how did, did you feel different? Like when you, as an athlete, when you entered practice or you entered a game, did you just feel mentally, you know, that you were a different person having been through the army, having been through ranger school and, and served these deployments? Or was that, again, was that kind of like buried and it's just like, hey, I'm just another dude with pads on, you know, that's trying not to get killed and trying to kill someone. Um, was it any different? Like, did you carry some of that with you? I think you have to. Yeah. I think there's a mental edge knowing like I can take more punishment than you can. You might be able to deliver more than me, but I can take a lot more. Um, And I know when things get dicey, when you're crumbling over in the corner, I'm going to be fine. Um, I think you have to have that mentality, especially in a a game like football, especially, you know, being at the division one level in the big 12. I mean, you you have to, otherwise you're going to get bullied. You're going to get crushed. So I carried that with me quite a bit. I didn't, verbally talk about it a whole lot. Like, I'm not going to talk about combat. I'm not going to talk about Rangers, all that around kids. Cause they don't, they don't care. That's not that important. I think three fourths of them assumed I was Rambo, um, which if they <laughs> asked me, I'll be clear. No, I was not. But if they assume I am and think I am, okay, whatever. That's a mental edge for me. I'm not going to lie, but they want to think that let them think it. So I think that I carried that with me a lot. Didn't help me a whole a whole lot going up against 300-pound offensive linemen, but it, it helped me in the locker room a little bit. Hmm, that's cool. And then where where did you go after that? Because one of the questions I think you know I want to ask, because I think a lot of people who were in the military probably struggle with afterwards, is like, where do you fill that void? You know, that that thrill or that accomplishment of of having served, you know, and then you leave like it's did you feel like what's next like obviously you you mentioned football has a lot of parallels that you could kind of fill maybe some of that but i mean once you know d1 college football is gone and being a ranger is gone like what was in your head how do you i mean i don't even know what you could do after that really i so i think that's a a big issue and a big topic across the board you know i have friends that play in the nfl that cannot watch football anymore they just they can't because it's something emotion comes up in them. It just really hurts them. Same with military service people um, getting out, like to sing a TV show or a movie or a commercial can trigger them. Maybe it's regret. Maybe it's, it's, they miss it or something like that. I don't know. It's a hard emotion to really label because it's different for everybody, but 
it is real. Uh, I was fortunate. So I, I was very blessed with getting out of the military, having that easy transition into a division one locker room, the same mentality and types of personalities that I served with. So that was easy for me. But once football ended, I remember like, what the hell do I do now? I've been an athlete for the last 15 years of my life. Uh, what is there? So I think I went to grad school. So after I got my bachelor's, I went on to get my master's out in North Carolina. And I remember I signed up for a winter mountaineering course, like whatever, this sounds cool. Let's go climb a mountain. And it mentally and physically, I remember it was a winter course climbing a 13 or 14,000 foot mountain with waist deep snow and snowshoes for days, pulling a sled at altitude. And it crushed me mentally. I mean, I, I summited the mountain, I made it off and I got down. I'm like, all right, that was very humbling. I watched people that are half my weight. Uh, they don't have the athleticism that I have that are maybe twice my age, crush me up this mountain. Um, so for me, that was another easy little path from sports into my personal life was get in the outdoors. Outdoors can humble you. Um, try and seek out some adventure. You know, I've been cast on a few television shows. I've been fortunate to go film one that really put me in a very uncomfortable situation out in the, the, the wild. Um, and I think stuff like that is it's fun. I try to go do expeditions, whether it's, I did a winter, a winter climb on Mount Whitney a couple of years ago that I was in the best shape of my life. I was 230 pounds. I had ran a, I think a 455 mile. That was my goal that year. And I got to this mountain. It's just, it murdered me. Didn't matter how good a shape I was in. I was very humbling and enlightening and gave me new perspective on life. So I think for me, it's a lot of people get out from the military or from sports and they think, oh, I peaked. And I'm a believer in just trying to have a whole bunch of peaks throughout your life. Doesn't matter how old you are. Keep trying to have those peaks. And for me, it's it's the physical aspect of doing something intense, outdoorsy. I, I've used that and carried that with me uh, since I left now, what, 10 years ago? 10, uh, nine years ago since I left uh, the football team. Yeah, no, I love that of, of setting new peaks. That's uh, That's so cool. You know, kind of make every day a new day. And so like, as, as you're doing all this stuff, I know you said you were on a show. What can we ask what show that was? Or is that still, uh, is that not Eric? No, I can't talk about what the show was. I can say it was a pretty awesome experience out in Africa, pretty life-changing, I would say. Really? But, uh, yeah. I, I was, so I, I got cast on a couple shows that I just, I didn't end up doing them. They were, when we say shows, we're talking about like competitive reality. We're not talking about a soap opera. We're not talking about <laughs> days of or real housewives stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I got cast on Survivor in 2020, in February, 2020. That's the one show I ever had in common with my mom. My dad used to watch every single episode all the time. I had still watched it with my mom. It was really the only thing I had in common with my mom at that point. Uh, and I got cast on it and I was a couple of weeks away from flying out to Fiji to film and COVID hit and I got put in a holding pattern. Oh. I had to leave my job, my startup. I got put in a holding pattern, trained every day, lost 20, 30 pounds, watched survivor every day, did puzzles every day. <laughs> and a year later come February, 2021, they called me and said, you're, you're still on it. We recast it. You're still on it. But then about a week or two before flying back out to Fiji, they said, hey, we made a whole bunch of shifts to the entire television show. We changed the format. We changed everything. You're, you're getting bumped from this season. And I was, it was pretty devastating. I mean, I've never really had a lot of issues in my life that have mentally crushed me. But spending a full year training to fulfill kind of a dream experience being taken away. And I get it. It's television, right? I, I can't be mad at them for it. Um, but having that taken away was really mentally devastating for me. So luckily I ended up getting connected with uh, another crew who went to film. A, it was more of a proof of concept. Can we do this? And if it's successful, then we'll turn it into a full television show. So we're kind of at that point right now where they're looking at turning it into a full show. Um, we'll see who picks it up or where it goes. But uh, yeah, it's a, uh, yeah, it was a really, really fun experience. Yeah, it's cool. And I, I noticed kind of a common thread throughout all of this is you, it seems like you just really, really keep busy. Um, do yeah. you, do you have much downtime where you're just like, what am I doing with life? Like, what, what should I do today? Or you just go, go, go. I definitely have a lot of downtime. I hate it. I hate downtime. Uh, I love it sometimes. Uh, I think especially when my, my son was between one and six months, I loved any downtime I could get. But I don't know. I think uh, for me, when I'm bored or I'm not doing stuff, like it breeds complacency. And when I get complacent, I get terrified. So same with the job. If you look at my background, I, I spent a lot of time jumping to different startups, doing different projects in different industries. Uh, that's what led me to still keep doing that today on the side. But I like that challenge and that having to learn a new industry or a new job or a new team or what have you. That's fun. That's why I 
know, I, I did grad school full time when I was working full time as well at a startup. And it was tough, but I was just so happy then. That's why I went back to get my doctorate right now is I, I like to spill my or spend my free time doing something productive, whether it's, you know, again, being out in the wild, pushing yourself to the limits. I consider that productive, but I'm mm -hmm. going back to school alongside my full time job because it forces me to spend my time learning something new, new theories, new practices, new modes of research. And that to me, I think I'm a better human and a better employee when I'm going to school. So that's, that's how I try to stay busy because I've seen too many people fall into this lull where they get complacent and bored and they just maintain that until basically the end of their life and they have a lot of regret. I just feel like that's terrifying to me. I, I, that's what gives me anxiety is mm -hmm. I'm going to fall into a routine and do the same thing um, you know, for the next 60, 70, 80 years. Yeah, I mean, it, I just watched that uh, documentary on Netflix by, with uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger. I know yeah. that's one of the things he kept saying is, you know, be useful, that that was like his dad's message. And uh, yeah, you get up every day and be useful and do something and, and just get that momentum. I think and, his memoir is the best memoir I've ever read, Arnold Schwarzenegger. It's called really? Total Recall. If you can get an audiobook, it's great because he narrates half of it. But it's <laughs> it's a very inspiring book that's very honest and raw, admits all of his faults. What's and, the name and of it? Mistakes. Uh, Total Recall. Total Recall. Okay. I'll have to put yeah. that one down. Not the movie, yeah, the, the yep, book. Yep. It's a great book. It's a very good book, but it's that, that's a big motivation there too. His whole his whole core theme was always stay hungry. I think that resonates with a lot of people. If you stop being hungry, like life's yep. not going to be as enjoyable. In, in that same vein, um, and you can just kind of share your input here, but you hear so much now in the general public about mental health. Um, in the military, obviously, you hear a ton now about, you know, guys, unfortunately, dealing with PTSD, um, you know, a alarmingly high suicide rate amongst, you know, veterans. What maybe do you attribute that to? Because it seems like when we look at wars past, particularly before Vietnam, you don't really hear those stories. Like, I don't know if just all of that was swept under the carpet and guys just dealt with it, self-medicated or did whatever they had to do, or now, you know, just kind of with, with mental health being such a buzzword, it's kind of at the forefront. Can you share anything that, that you've seen personally or, or with, you know, your other guys out there of, um, you know, how real is that? Why is it a problem? And how are guys dealing with it or not dealing with it? Yeah, it's a tough one. Again, I think I've been lucky there. I wouldn't call it a skill. I just call it luck. But I think a lot of people, it's it's hard to nail down because I think we label moral injuries as PTSD a lot. And moral injuries are something I just learned about recently. Uh, you know, maybe you didn't see something traumatic, but maybe you made a decision that had a bad a bad outcome and you just think about it a lot. Maybe you look back and think, hey, if I would have motivated my friend to continue on and go to ranger selection, he wouldn't have died in the conventional army a year later. Things like that, I think, really impact people. And we too often want to label them PTSD. I think they call it PTS now, but either way, um, I, I think it's so multifaceted. A lot of people get out and they just lose that sense of purpose, that community. And like I said, they, they think they peaked. They don't, they don't want to go find a new peak. They, they, they want to just live in the past and it really impacts them. But I think also social media, you know, I think World War II and Vietnam, those guys and, and girls and Korea as well, I think they had a pretty high suicide rate and a pretty high depression rate. And they cope with alcohol and other things like that because we didn't know about it back then. But I think when you add in all of that and then you add in social media, things are way harder nowadays. I think the suicide rate in, in kids is going up because social media, that puts all these extra pressures on people and these false senses of what you should do in life or what is happiness. We all know that the people that are posting all their pictures on the internet every single day of their fancy cars and their big house and their lovely wife, a lot of them are probably deeply in debt and not that happy. But when you see it, it impacts you. Or when you see your friends still serving in the military doing cool stuff, it really brings you down. Or when you see that news report about Ukraine and, and Russian soldiers torturing women and children, it really eats at you. Um, and I don't really know what the answer is. I think there's just so many different causes for it, but I've had three or four people from my platoon alone. I think that I, I serve with that have killed themselves. Jeez. I don't understand it. I mean, that's, that's for the, the doctors and the medical professionals to figure out, but it's, uh, it's definitely tough. It's very tough for people. 
And if you don't mind, I mean, is that anything that, that you struggled with personally? Or did you just have the mindset of like before? Did somebody tell you like, hey, Tom, before you get out of here, like already have your next step mapped out and and you just went, you know, kind of full speed ahead without taking a break to kind of, you know, debrief and decompress and take in everything that you'd been through. No, the army, I think they've gotten light years better at it. But back then they just said, oh, you want to get out? Fine. You're gone. And they kick you to the curb. That was it. Even, even Ranger Battalion. Oh, hey, you're getting out. Cool. You're dead to us. See you later. And now they do a lot more. Now they say, if you don't have a plan for when you get out, maybe you shouldn't get out. Uh, they do a lot more mentoring. They connect you with civilian organizations that help you learn more about what you want to do. College isn't for everybody. I've seen so many veterans. I was one of them who were entitled and arrogant and failed out of college and they blamed it on the system, but really it was their own inability to have a growth mindset or adapt. But no, no one talked to me. They, they kind of shun you when you say you're getting out. Uh, so it, it was, again, I had to go get myself recruited too. There was no tool or resource for veterans to get recruited for football. I probably had to go meet with 20, 30 colleges and three fourths of them would say military guy. Nah, you're too old. We don't no interest in you. So I was busy. I was busy going on the recruiting trail, trying to get myself recruited by these teams. So that gave me uh, an easier path, I think, out. But for those people that don't, that move back to their hometowns and fall back into their old, their old, old ways, it's, it's tough when you don't have anybody mentoring you or guiding you out of the military. And I guess, you know, just kind of listening to what you're saying, I guess maybe it's a little different where you don't have, I guess, in the, in the army, like a class that you graduate or retire in essence with where it's like, all right, I had my 10 boys that I was with, you know, all throughout today, we're, we're retiring together. And you're on like that group text, almost like an alumni group of, Hey, dude, what are you doing? Did you check this out? Did you check that out? Is it everybody just kind of like sprinkled about where we're all leaving randomly at different times? Yeah, yeah, most people yeah. are. I mean, there's plenty of onesies and twosies that that retire with their friends or their because con your contract. You all we all sign different contracts. Some people sign five, some sign six. In the regular army, some were signing three or four. So your contracts are all different, and that really impacts it. But yeah, I think getting out on your own uh, is is intimidating and scary. You know, it's easy to say. I used to say this all the time. Well, if you can make the transition from being a civilian to joining the military. That's drastically different and a harder culture shock than going from military back to civilian. But um, it's kind of not. When you do it all on your own, it's it's difficult. And then you go from an environment where you're, every part of your life is dictated and directed to make your own decisions. That's very tough for people to do on their own. It, it sounds like you were like almost a bit of an entrepreneur when you went into the army and, and that when you came out, you were already to start you know, finding those things to do with your time. Um, but I, I imagine how hard that could be because there are times even myself as an entrepreneur, you know, being a financial advisor, podcast host, author, you know, wear all these different hats that it's exciting. And that's what I love. I'd have it no other way. But then you do have days where at least me personally, where I'm like, man, I wish just this week I could be like an employee. And somebody said, hey, Bri, Monday, do this Tuesday, do that. Then Wednesday, you know, do this until two. And I could almost kind of like shut my brain off and be like, all right, man, I'll do what you say. Um, and I think a lot of entrepreneurs go through that at some point or another. But at least that's the only thing I could maybe relate to of when you go to something so structured, like you said, like the military, and then they let you loose. It, it's almost like going the other way of going from like employee to entrepreneur like that. And um, it, did, did you kind of feel that way? Does that sound at all accurate? I think that's very accurate. No, I think that's very true. Um... I had that in my day-to-day -day life right now as well. Some, some days, I'm, I'm always trying to find things to fill the void with. If I have an hour between meetings, I don't want to go put on the TV. I want to find something to do. Nine times out of 10, I, I think I'm being productive and I'm not. But uh, it, is, it is good. Those days where I look at my calendar and I'm on seven or eight hours of meetings that other people are leading, my thought sometimes is, thank God, I don't have to lead anything today. I can just sit in and follow the curriculum today for work, what have you. Um, I think that's a real thing. Yeah, I would completely agree with that. Hmm, interesting. And so one thing maybe to kind of tie it all together here, Tom, is, um, you know, my book came out earlier this year, What Should I Do With My Money? One of the things that's gotten a lot of attention, it really was kind of like a, a core tenant of the book is this thing called MICE, which is just an acronym for money, ideology, compromise, and ego. 
you know, these four triggers that, that everybody has that kind of, you know, tugs us in different directions. So if I could, if I could just ask, you know, everything you've been through, if we can go one, you know, one by one, um, what role does money play in your life today? Uh, money has really shaped my life uh, in the way that I made a lot of mistakes in the army, like like all the cliches. <laughs> They're all real. All the cliches are about dumb kids buying. I, I had a really good interest rate in my first car, but I bought a $30,000 car, I think, with a $25,000 a year salary. So <laughs> I learned a lot. I joined the army with 500 bucks. I left the army with like negative 500 bucks. I had nothing. I didn't even have a car when I joined the army. Um, and I've, I've, I had to make all those mistakes and those failures. I couldn't work when I was playing football in college, for example. Um, so I couldn't build up an income or a, a good nest egg or anything like that. But I think all those experiences really taught me what to value. And it's really shaped where I'm at now. I don't, I got rid of my nice, fancy, sexy car and I have a 20 year old Land Cruiser now with 200,000 miles on it. Cause I drive 500 miles a month max. Um, so I think money's play, money plays a very – I think anybody that says money doesn't matter is, is making it up because it does. You don't pay the bills with, with goodwill. You pay it with money. Um, and if you want to go to school, I'm paying, I'm paying for, for school with my money. So I'm working and getting money for, to do the things I love, travel, school, learn new things, be good at my job, all these things. So I, I think money has definitely been a big impact, but it's shifted over the years. It means different things as you get older and go through different phases of your life, I think. And then the next one, ideology. So I know money, once you kind of get a good understanding, you can get a bit of that independence, that financial freedom that we're all in search for. And then that can kind of open the doors to pursue your passion or pursue that ideology. Um, what would you think of as ideology or your, your North Star? Oh, man, that's the toughest part of my life right now. I'm still trying to find out. You know, I I don't have a North star per se anymore. And that's what I've been trying to find really, really trying to find the flow and everything else to get to it. But I think purpose is kind of, as you get older too, more and more important, like is making money the most important thing in my life right now for my job, or is it really having a sense of purpose and a passion for it? Um, that's kind of more so what my ideology has shifted towards. You know, I've had job offers for double the salary for my current job. And it's like, eh, I don't have any interest in that job, that industry, that company. Now I'm good. I don't want to do it. I want to do something that's purposeful. And when I say purposeful, it doesn't have to be religion or charity or anything like that. It can be anything. For me, um, there's a few things I've been trying to pursue in my life and try and get closer and closer to. So it's almost like a funnel. My ideology has always been kind of a funnel. It's getting narrower and narrower in its scope every single year. Every single experience brings it in more and more narrowly. That's why I think I like doing all these crazy outdoorsy things and whatnot. Yep. But uh, yeah, I, one day maybe I'll have an answer for you that's direct. <laughs> but I, I don't I have one. All right of now. us, in a sense, are constantly kind of working towards that. And, and yeah. you go out and you have more and more of the experiences like you're describing, and you do kind of narrow that down and find out what just totally makes you tick. Um, I think. I think too with that we. Like I have, I have a couple friends. One's a school teacher. She makes like forty thousand dollars a year, fifty thousand dollars a year, and she loves what she does. She does not care. She will not take more money to do anything else. That's what she loves. And then I have friends that are making two, three hundred k a year who are miserable in their lives, but they're too arrogant and they just won't stop and find a passion. I think, I think we miss that a lot, though. Yeah, yeah. You kind of become a slave to the money at some point. Yep. And then the last two. So next up is compromise. Um, you know, every day is a compromise, you know, kind of a, a tug of war between all these different competing ideas and thoughts. What's maybe that one thing that you're not willing to compromise on? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I don't really know. I think I mean, I think I'm someone that I have my ethics, I have my morals, I have things I, I believe in that I won't cross those boundaries. I think one thing I yeah, I think the ethics is the biggest thing for me. I won't ever sacrifice, like I'm not going to undermine someone else so I have a better gain from it. That's just not, some people do and that's business, I get it, but that's not me. So I think that's one thing I won't ever compromise on. I think a lot of my life has been built on trust. It's been built on building relationships with trust and I will not do anything that degrades or undermines kind of that trust with those relationships. That's one thing I'll never compromise on. Got it. Well said. And then last but not least, kind of like the X factor here is ego. Um, so ego plays a role at some point in all our lives, kind of makes us sometimes do things that don't make sense. Uh, how do you control your ego? 
My wife would say I don't. My wife would say <laughs> me leaving the film TV shows and go climb mountain shows, I don't control it. Um, but I think that's one of the big parts of going out and doing crazy things is it's humbling. Like like I said, like trying to climb a, um, I mean, when I did my Mount Whitney climb, I got about two, 300, it was a winter one, ice axes, crampons, all that. And when I got about 200 meters from the summit, I had my team with me and I said, yeah, I'm, I'm toast. I'm physically, I can't take another step. I might, we actually, someone did fall off the mountain and die that day. So I'm glad I didn't keep going. But um, I said, nope, I am going to put my ego in check here and I'm going to sit down, give me the radios. Uh, I can't go because I'm a liability to you guys. I might slip and cause injury to you or, or somebody else. Um, so I think those kind of experiences really humble you and they, they put you in check and they make you understand it's okay to let off the gas. It's okay to say, nope, I'm failing. I need to switch up my tactic. Or, or do something do something different for me i think failure has always been a great thing i failed plenty of times in my life and i've learned way more from those failures than i have uh from my successes so i think for my ego what that means is pushing it to the limits to the point you're not afraid to fail because it really humbles you it keeps you in check shows you your left or right boundaries shows you new perspectives new tactics that and i think uh, i threw my back out and had to go to the er sitting down on a couch wrong last year so that also really <laughs> check my ego to remind me like, yeah, not the spring chicken anymore. So yeah, that plays a part. <laughs> That's funny, man. All right. That, that was great, Tom. And, and one thing we have to end with here that I know my, my listeners and viewers love is this lightning round uh, where we get to know a little bit about, you know, more about you, the guest here. Um, so if that's okay, we'll just kind of run through some questions. You just tell us the first thing that comes to mind. All right. All right. So first up, and you may have alluded to this already, but what is your favorite book? Ooh, loaded question. We're going to go team of teams. We'll go team of teams by General McChrystal. It's my favorite book. Okay. And some more question. What's your favorite movie? Interstellar. No question. I think I've cried twice in my adult life, both times during Interstellar. One very recently on a plane when I rewatched it. So. Oh, my goodness. And uh, so you've obviously traveled the world, you know, with some of these different ventures and then also with the Army. What is your favorite destination or vacation? Ooh, Peru's probably the prettiest country I've ever been to in my life. Tanzania was amazing, but I, I got to go Cape Town, South Africa. It's it's a mind-blowingly awesome place to be. Really awesome. Never been. I'll put that on the list. It's a long flight. It's a long <laughs> flight, but it's worth it. Very cheap. Very cheap to visit. And so growing up, uh, two-part question here. What did you want to be when you were growing up? And did you have any sort of hero or idol when you were growing up? Yeah, hero and idol. Only one I ever had growing up was Pat Tillman. What did I want to be when I grew up? I never knew and still don't. Never had any vision of being, I always knew being 6'5". I was 6'6 back then. I lost a little bit of height in the army, but uh, there's no way they're ever going to take me in NASA and I'm not smart enough to be an astronaut. So that was kind of off the table. Uh, but I never, I never had any dreams of being anything. I, I did I did go through a long phase where I wanted to be a filmmaker. I wanted to be a director or a producer. I applied to film schools and then I joined the army. So I took a, a detour on that one, but that was probably the closest I ever had to a vision or a goal. Gotcha. Well, you still got time. And uh, last few here. Uh, so what's the first thing you do in the morning? Is there a morning routine? Aside from taking my dogs for a walk at five in the morning, uh, the first thing I do is caffeine. I'm a caffeine addict, my only addiction in life. So I usually do caffeine, come downstairs, fire up the computer and read a couple journal articles for school. That's a, that's a pretty boring way to start your day, but it's how I started. Okay. And last but not least, uh, do you have a quote to live by? I do not have any quote to live by. I have nothing. Okay. That's fine. And just as we wrap up here, Tom, this was great. Thank you so much for the time. Um, really enlightening conversation. Is there anything that you'd like to leave our listeners with today or anything you didn't touch on that you want to get off your chest? You know, I don't, I don't have anything I want to get off my chest. No, I think, uh, I think you covered everything. I think kind of to wrap it all together. I think if we're talking, I know this is, this is a more of a business focused podcast and everything. So I think it's really important. A topic that doesn't get brought up enough is relationships. I think that's also a core driver of really why I've done all the different things I've done in my life because it spawns off a whole bunch of different networks, a whole bunch of different people. And those people have given me a lot of really good perspective. You know, in, introverts speak differently than extroverts. Someone from Boston communicates differently than someone from Arizona. 
all these different experiences have all been tied together. The number one thing I've gotten out of life from doing all these different things is just that perspective of people. And that's why I've been successful in my life, I think, so far, is really working on that that network and building those relationships up. I don't know how that really factors into your podcast too much right now, but I think it's something that doesn't get talked about enough. Everyone always talks about the hard skills and everything else. And I think that soft skill, soft skill aspect is something that we're seeing really diminished and disappear. Um, and I really just want, kind of wanted to give that one a plug. If you're out there right now and you don't know what you want to do in your life, ping someone on LinkedIn, send me a message, send anybody a message. Worst case scenario, they don't respond. Best case scenario, you get great advice and change your life. And I think that really is, is part of building up those soft skills. So just kind of want to give that a little bit of a plug. Yep. No, that's awesome. And I, I think it does have 100% a place here on this podcast. You know, I often credit my start in this business 100% to networking. Um, you know, it doesn't matter how much you know, or how hard you want to work. If you can't go help somebody or bring value to someone, then you're just kind of spinning your wheels. Um, yep. so I like that. That was spot on. And uh, Tom, thanks again for making the time here. This was awesome. Uh, really appreciate you coming on the show. Yeah, thanks, Brian. I really appreciate it. This was a good time. I Thank you. Thank you. All right, everyone. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Kaderna podcast. I'm your host, Brian Kaderna. Today, we had the pleasure of speaking with Tom Hall. Be sure to go check him out. We'll leave some information in the show notes. And uh, wherever you're tuning in, please subscribe, leave us a review, and go tell a friend as we continue to pursue wealth in its original meaning, a state of well-being. We will see you next time. This podcast is intended for the general public and for informational purposes only. The show does not provide any recommendations or investment advice regarding any specific account type, service, strategy, or product, or to otherwise act in any fiduciary or other capacity. Please contact a financial professional for guidance and information that is specific to your situation. Brian Kaderna does not provide tax or legal advice. Please contact your accountant or legal advisor to discuss your situation. Guest speakers and their firms are not affiliated with or endorsed by Park Avenue Securities, Guardian, or Kaderna Financial Team, and opinions stated are their own. All investments contain risk and may lose value. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. References to specific securities, asset classes, and financial markets are for illustrative purposes only and do not constitute a solicitation, offer, or recommendation to purchase or sell a security. Brian Kaderna is a registered representative and financial advisor of Park Avenue Securities, LLC, PAS, OSJ, 300 Broadacres Drive, Suite 175, Bloomfield, New Jersey, 07003, phone number 973-244-4420. Securities products and advisory services offered through PAS, member FINRA, SIPC. Financial representative of the Guardian Life Insurance Company of America, Guardian, New York, New York. PAS is a wholly owned subsidiary of Guardian. Kaderna Financial Team is not an affiliate or subsidiary of PAS or Guardian. California Insurance License Number 0K04194.